Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. And we continue our new series that uh, we're going to, Matt and I are going to pull select portions out of the Genesis story. And as you can see from the title slide, Genesis is one big story of how God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things to transform them. And it's a reminder to all of us that he's the extraordinary God. And he is the center character in all of Scripture, but certainly in Genesis as well. We're coming to a, a portion of Scripture today, and as you can see from the title slide regarding today's message, whose name will be great? That's one of the questions that all of us really kind of struggle with all through life. Whose name will be great? Will your name be great? Will the family name be great? Will a ruling party or political group be great? Will athletes be great? You think of all the segments of life and all the personalities and, and uh, vocational settings and whatnot, and there is an opportunity for greatness by human standards in many ways, and yet there really can only be one name that is great, and that is the name of our God. As we look at Genesis 11 this morning, and I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read the first nine verses. I want you to note, uh, notice in particular how uh, the descendants within about a hundred years probably after the flood uh, kind of determine that making a name for themselves is worth pursuing. And that's going to stand in contrast to what God began to do uh, all the way back in Genesis 1 when he created the world. So you follow along as I read the first nine verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build, for, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word this morning and continue our study of the first book of your holy word, we ask that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that we would understand your truth, and that he would awaken our souls, that we might believe the truth and then respond in obedience and faith, not only to receive it and accept it, but to live it out. Spirit of God, would you bring conviction upon our hearts for our own efforts and motivation 
to make a great name for self. And would you reorient us this day to the living God, the one true God, whose name alone is high and exalted above all others. And would you cause us as one people to build his uh, eternal kingdom in word and in deed. But we ask that your kingdom would come first into our hearts and then that you would establish it through us as we surrender all to you. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this appeared on my computer screen last night. Actually, it was a Facebook feed, and I thought, well, isn't that ironic? While I sit here preparing a message on the Tower of Babel that big brother Google thinks I need to know about the Babel software language building opportunity that exists in my little world today. Kind of freaky, isn't it? it? Stokes those conspiracy theories that we all try to quash and, and quell in our souls. And I think to myself, you know, maybe it is time to break out the tinfoil hats. <laughs> it's a marketing opportunity. You know why? In part because in our world today, there are actually a little over 7,100 languages. Now think about that for just a second. That's 7,100 languages, and there are only 196 countries. Why do we need so many languages? Well, because, you know, the population's been growing for several thousand years, and just like some of you grew up in a different setting, you know, the hometown language is what you're going to learn, but then you move a little bit, and there's you know, a little change or a little morph here or there. I grew up in the South, and one of the first things people say is, you don't have a Southern accent. And, you know, there are some language differences even within the greater English language. As you can see from the screen, that 40% of the world's population speaks one language. That's probably most of us in this room. It'd be interesting to see if that same percentage is represented here. Another 40% speak two languages, and that's fairly impressive, isn't it? 15% speak three, and I say, that's really impressive. 4% speak four, and then 1% of the world's population speaks five plus. And there's a little term that I learned for those um, who who can speak multiple languages, uh, five or more, you fall into the category of polyglot. You know what poly means, many, glot, tongues. And if you actually, there's like a little tiny just sliver of the population that that knows, speaks, and understands 12 languages or more, you have the special designation of hyper-polyglot. Any hyper-polyglots in the room today? Don't be shy. I really, I want to shake your hand. What a marvel. Where did all this begin? Well, Genesis 11 is actually answering that question for us. But the story of the Tower of Babel is more than just an intriguing moment in human history when suddenly multiple languages appeared. It actually marks an important moment in the development of God's story of creation and redemption. The redemptive work began after the first human beings rebelled against God and committed, as one of my favorite theologians who's now with the Lord said all through his life and ministry, cosmic treason. 
It seemed like such a small thing to eat the forbidden fruit, but it was a defiant act of rebellion. And that brought with it all kinds of consequences into the world, from death and disease from, uh, to the chaos and disorder that all of us deal with every single day we live. This portion of scripture not only tells us how we ended up segmented into people, groups, and languages, but it highlights again the devastation and chaos that always results from our sin and rebellion against our creator God when we say no to him and then set out on a path of self-determination and self-glory. At our best, the human race continues to make a mess of things on planet Earth, and we really do wonder if there's any hope. We just sang it, but I'll guarantee you some of you were actually struggling with the tension of that, saying, yeah, I affirm that Jesus Christ is my living hope, but things are bad. Others of you hear that song, and and maybe you never heard it before, and you're like, is Jesus Christ really worthy of my hope? Well, this is an important piece of that grand story that the Bible is telling us. So let's back up just a little bit and let me review some things real quickly. Genesis 1 teaches us that God created all things, but the human race in particular. Remember before Christmas when we took some time to go through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we looked at the fact that human beings are the pinnacle of creation and they alone are created in God's image. That gives to us divine dignity and value. It gives to us uh, eternal significance and purpose for living and vocations flow out of it. Your life matters. You are not the product of random chance or evolutionary changes over millions and millions of years. You are God's great idea, and he loves you and values you. But then we came to Genesis 3 and saw the first man and woman rebel with a high hand against God, and they broke one simple command, and God came and pronounced a curse upon this world because of their sin, and a perpetual struggle between good and evil emerged in Genesis 3, and there is now perpetual sorrow for mothers in particular, as God noted through pregnancy, as we seek to bring children into this world. There's a perpetual strain for Adam, and I think the, the, the typical household bread winner feels that strain to put food on the table, and there was also something that God noted in Genesis 3. There was a perpetual disruption of all human relationships, beginning with the first husband and wife as they enter into this conflict for control. Some of you feel that painfully. And we feel it not only in marriages, but we feel it between parents and children. We feel it between extended family members. We feel it between political parties and even sports teams. The consequences of our sin touch every part of our existence. The hope of Genesis 3 was found in verse 15, though, wasn't it? That's where God had promised to remedy our sin and work a personal transformation in the human race when he said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and between the descendants of this woman. And then he promised one particular descendant, didn't he? He says to Eve, who's just rebelled with a high hand, it's through your womb that a son is going to enter this world and he will crush the head of my adversary and your adversary. And so we began to wait for the arrival of that son. It wasn't Cain because he killed his brother Abel and then God banished him. Is it Seth? Well, interesting enough, Seth seems to be a righteous man. And as we continue to read through Genesis, we see the genealogy emerge of a righteous, faith-filled group of people. But it gets smaller and smaller. And that's where we came last week to the story of Noah, where he's the only righteous man. He and his wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. 
Like how could the world spiral into that chaos so rapidly? Well, Matt reminded us last week that the evil God described in that particular moment of human history was both expansive and invasive. And the people who were created by God to be life givers had now become life destroyers. And in a great act of judgment, God flooded the world to bring that violence and evil to an end. In one sense, we could look at Noah as a second Adam. And there's great hope even after the flood that he and his family begin to repopulate the earth and things seem to be going well for a while until that tragic scene of Noah's drunkenness and one son shames him and then that family is fractured. And you have a sense of like, oh no, here we go again. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes we look at the law of entropy, which is more than physics at work in the universe. And Some of you say entropy. I heard that word once upon a time or I've never seen it before. That just has to do with the gradual decline of all things into disorder. That's why Weed Man knocked on our door yesterday and wanted to sell us a plan for taking care of the yard. If the yard is neglected, what will happen? The grass will turn to a weed bed. It's an example of entropy. But it's not simply a a scientific or physiological process, the law of entropy, the gradual decline and disorder of all things is ultimately a reflection of the corruption that entered the world through the sin of the human heart. And the same condition emerges in the plains of Shinar, as we read in the story just a few moments ago, and it's a place that we now know as Babel. But do not despair. Do not despair as you read the story. And, And here we are probably what, a couple of thousand years into human history, at least? You say, why shouldn't we despair? Because God has not forgotten his promise. You say, hey, that, that looks like Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. Exactly. That scene isn't, isn't well-defined at this point for Noah or any of his descendants. It's sure not at the forefront of the mind of these people who are going to engage in this big building project in the plains of Shinar. But it's firmly fixed, ordained even, in the mind of God. The eternal counsels of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's as good as done. God keeps his promises. Now, Go to Genesis 11. The people here unite actually against God. It's not overtly stated, but if you meditate on this for about 20 seconds, it becomes apparent, doesn't it? Notice the things that they're unified in. Not all of this is sin. There's unity of speech, uh, Moses records for us in this passage. There's one language and the same words. There's unity of location. They decided to settle in a particular place, and he identifies it, the plains of of Shinar. That's present-day Iraq. And there's unity of purpose, and this is where we're going to park for a moment. Initially, it's kind of exciting. Come, let us make bricks. They, They are recovering some of the technology that was lost before the flood. And by the way, if you've been told that early man was primitive caveman stuff, and they, they kind of you know, walked around a reflection of their earlier you know, monkey ancestors in these primitive clothing and grunted and pointed at things. And that's so, that's so false. The earliest generations were the strongest, brightest, healthiest, most brilliant 
humans who've ever lived. Imagine if God just pulled your little family out of the world today and stuck you in a big boat for about a year, destroyed everything else, and then opened the door and said, okay, can you repopulate the earth? Where would you start? Some of you would start by trying to figure out, well, where, where, where do I charge my smartphone? <laughs> and, and is there Wi-Fi left on planet earth? I mean, think of all the technologies that would be lost if it happened to you. And so I, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but I'm actually eager for God to tell us what kind of technologies were lost at the flood. That's a whole other discussion. And we're going to go back to the Bible, though, and stick with this. <laughs> so this is a moment. They are regaining some technology, and, and you shouldn't just think of like, oh, wow, primitive man suddenly learned to make bricks. No, these are bricks that would support the structures and weight of a really large project. And then they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Oh, now we begin to see real heart motives. The Babylonian ziggurats that are still um, seen in this region, we know were built, and I, and I think they are just the you know, second, third generation structures uh, that reflect in a smaller way what was taking place here. These, those ziggurats were constructed with, with temples at the very top. And often an idol or idols were placed there and they were designed to be tall and, and to reach into the heavens. And you can go back even to uh, some of the archaeological and historical um, records that are available to us from just a couple of centuries beyond this very point. And they'll just tell you straight up, these are temples to this God and that God, and this is what we used it for. Well, here's where it got its start. And then they say, let us make a name for ourselves. What? That's where the needle kind of drags across the vinyl. And we stop everything for a second and say, make a name for ourselves. Yeah, they're talking about building a reputation. What kind of reputation? Well, a reputation that would be so strong that they wouldn't be scattered. The whole point is, we don't want to be threatened by anybody else or anything. You know, if enough of us come together, we pool our resources we can not only build a structure that would reach into the heavens and worship the way we want, we can probably form an army, create an economy. I mean, what, what would stop us? And you know, they're actually right. But where's God in this? Where's God in this massive building project? It, and so they are unified even for their protection, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And you know, that, that motive isn't, sinful from start to finish. I mean, we actually were created by God for relationship. You can go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and find that. The creation mandate of Genesis 1.28, to be specific, God said to Adam and Eve, and, and frankly, it still applies to all of us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. Built into that is human relationship families, and then communities emerge, and then cities even. There are other passages in the word of God where it's clear God actually is for cities. The difference here, though, is that more than a healthy desire for community or just safety in the day-to-day -day living, there is a desire for power and control, for fame and recognition apart from the living 
God, these people have united against the creator. And as that kind of human motivation always results in chaos and disorder, so this is about to result in more chaos and disorder. But before you think this is all judgment, no, God actually graciously intervenes. Look at verse five with me, please, because God comes down. This is the divine perspective. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And and that's not just like a, a matter of fact. I mean, Moses is making a point because God himself is making a point. The tallest building on planet Earth right now and forgive me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, it looks like Burj Khalifa to me. It's, it's in Dubai. 2,717 feet, 163 floors. Wouldn't you love to go to the top of that? Some of you are like, no way. You've seen some of those other tall buildings where they actually like have a glass floor you could step out you know, over that expanse, and there are very funny videos of people who you know, panic or whatnot or or even glass uh, that you can lean against that is just angled out over you know, a high elevation like that. 2,717 feet, that's impressive until you go to the top of Mount Everest, until you go to the moon and look back on this little planet or fly further through our little, our little solar system and look back at Earth from Mars or Earth from Saturn or Earth from beyond Neptune. I use this not because God is billions of light years away in heaven, but because it's good for us to have perspective on how small we really are, particularly in comparison to God. God came down, came down to see what was happening. Isaiah 40 says, In verse 22, it is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is God. Theologian and commentator Gordon Wenham wrote of this particular moment, the tower which man thought reached to heaven, God can hardly see. From the height of heaven, it seems insignificant, so the Lord must come down to look at it like an ant farm on the shelf of a child's bedroom. What's going on in that little box? But we think we're something, don't we? We developed artificial intelligence. We created the great Google. We even have an app called Google Translate. We're not farming ants. We're the ants in the farm in comparison. That's the divine perspective. But there's a divine assessment. They are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Now, lest we be too disparaging of of humanity, we are created in the image of God. And I mean, God packed powerful ability and potential in us. When that's under God's control, it can be used for great things. When it is not under his control, it, it tends to chaos and destruction and terrible things. 
Then the Lord says, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And, and it would be easy to read that. If you read that in isolation and say, oh, God feels a little threatened there, doesn't he? No, don't forget Isaiah 40, among many other passages. I mean, he's dealing with a little grasshopper revolt. Kristen was, we were talking with some friends this week about when we lived in South Carolina. And the first house we owned had a little carport. And at the end of the carport was our laundry room and storage room. And, you know, it was one of those lights in the middle. You had to pull the chain down when you went. And we, so the, you know, washer and dryer were out there and a few other tools and whatnot. And sometimes you go out and pull the chain and camel crickets would be hopping around on the floor. And they're just kind of creepy. You say, what's a camel cricket? Just go look it up. Um, and, you know, it's a little freaky, but I can't say that I ever felt threatened by those things. And sometimes I just would start stepping on them because they're an annoyance. They weren't a threat. This, this thing that's going on in the plains of Shinar is not a threat to God, but he does recognize and we've already seen this once, haven't we? That the, when the thoughts and intentions of the human heart were only evil continually, it just spiraled down and down and down in greater violence and greater immorality in full-blown corruption. And that's what God is about to address right now. And so he steps into the middle of this and disrupts it all. Let us go down and there confuse their language. Who's the us referring to? I think at minimum, it's a Trinitarian reference that God as one God yet three persons is fully engaged in this. It could also have reference uh, you know, to the part of the heavenly host that does have authority uh, delegated to them. They are you know, way below the Lord himself, but that's a whole other conversation, and we'd have to dig into some obscure passages of the Scripture and still not be certain. But nonetheless, let us go down and there confuse their language. Now, that's a little surprising, isn't it? Because you'd almost expect that he'd send like a great earthquake or a fierce storm and just physically topple the building program. That's what most of us would do, right? Like make them start all over. No, God's too wise and too gracious. Confuse means he's, when, when he says, let us go down there and confuse their language, he means I, I'm, I'm gonna make their, their communication really blurry and unclear. God reprograms apparently, the brains and tongues of this crowd. And I, I mean, I've been thinking about this all week, and there's an aspect of, like, I mean, this is humorous, it's tragic, it's all kinds of things wrapped up in, into one, but can you imagine, like, one day you leave the job site, like, thinking, be back in the morning, we got a great thing going here, you go to bed, you get up, you eat your breakfast, and maybe even in your own little house, you begin talking, you're not hearing that anything's changed, you show up on the job site and suddenly there's a dude across from you speaking German and you're like, why is he so angry at me? <laughs> and then you begin to speak and, and like, you, you can't really hear it because you understand it, you get it, but then somebody else looks at you and you're like, what, did you have a baguette for breakfast? Like, what, where did this French come from? And who knows how many languages God created at that moment, but I'm thinking, yeah, confusion, you think? Utter chaos. And if any of you have ever traveled outside of your native tongue into another you know, city or culture or even just community or family where you know, whatever your native tongue is isn't theirs and you're trying to overcome a language barrier, I mean, we do kind of crazy things to, do, to, to overcome that, don't we? Sometimes we slow the rate of speech down as if suddenly you know, slower speech will give understanding to the people who, 
who don't speak my native tongue. Or sometimes we raise the volume. I said, where's the bathroom? And they look at you and smile and say, yes. <laughs> we revert to sign language. We do all kinds of things to overcome a language barrier. And you, well, you can understand how rapidly this thing would deteriorate. And, and I mean, almost as a pitiful little sidebar, oops, the, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Oh, that's the one thing they didn't want to happen, right? And they left off the building program. I, I just love that. Abandon the project. This isn't going anywhere. Now, the picture in front of you is actually a ziggurat from the 21st century B.C. That probably is within 200, 250 years of this very moment. That's an impressive structure right there. We have no idea if this would come close to what the original Tower of Babel was. Uh, but this massive step pyramid, as it's also called, measures 210 feet in length, 150 feet in width, over 100 feet in height. But the ultimate height is speculative because only the foundation of this, of this particular Sumerian ziggurat has survived. And just like some of the ant farms that are now in the back of a closet somewhere because you abandoned the project years ago, the people have to walk away because they can't even communicate on some basic construction planning. What humanity intended to be a monument to their glory became a symbol of their confusion and inability. Are you worried about one world governments? God graciously intervened in history past and he's intervened actually multiple times. He'll intervene again. We form all kinds of tinfoil hats to protect ourselves from threats. They actually cause God to laugh. You say, what? Yeah, Psalm 2 asks a really important question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Think about that for a moment. The, the, this crowd in the plains of Shinar wanted to build a temple where they would set their God at the very pinnacle, and this building was gonna reach into the heavens, and God says, no, you won't, because there's only one person who will ever be exalted to the heights, even of the human race, and it's nobody living among you, and it's no idol that you might carve or some mythological god that you would create. I have made a choice. I've set my king on my holy hill. And then he goes on in Psalm 2 to say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. What son is he talking about? Well, the son that was promised to Eve back in Genesis 3, the son that every generation was waiting for, the son that, as Psalm 2 refers to, will be born into the world and, res and die on a cross and resurrected from a grave one day. Look at what he goes on to say to this son in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And and we could even spread that out a little beyond this in its application. Uh, Be warned, you who would build a name for yourself in rebellion against God. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The things we fear as a human race, God fully intends to protect us from. He didn't call you to build your own little fortress, to create your own little tower in in the plains of Shinar where you've decided to set up life. He didn't create you just to abandon you and leave you on your own. He actually created you to remain in relationship with him, to be submitted under his great sovereignty and lordship, to live your life according to his law and to enjoy all the blessings and benefits that flow from his holy temple to you, little you. But somehow we think, oh, God's an oppressor. He's mean, he's evil, he never lets me do anything that I like. That is not the God of the Bible. This God in heaven governs all. He graciously descends. I'm gonna tie some things from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible. And where we're gonna go next week in, in, in chapter 12, I'm sorry, Kristen and I will not be here. We're actually gonna go visit our oldest son and another family members. But Matt's gonna take the baton and, and run into chapter 12. And we're gonna meet a man named Abraham. He's a descendant of Noah, specifically of Noah's son, Shem. And God actually comes to him in a great covenant promise and says, I'm calling you, Abram. Go from your country and your kindred. And at that point, he lives, mm, at, it's, it's quite a distance on the map uh, from Babel, but it's still in the same general region. And he says, go from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What? That's why you gotta keep Genesis 11 open next to Genesis 12. It's such a contrast. People getting their own plans and purposes and get together saying, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We're gonna create a great city. We're gonna create a great culture. We're gonna create, create a, a great movement on planet Earth and change the world. And God says, I'm the one with the plan. Follow me. And he goes and he picks an obscure dude from a place called Ur actually picks him out of a family of idol worshipers. Oh, what grace this is. Fast forward, why will Abraham's name be great? Why will all the families ultimately of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Because Abraham has a great son down the line, and it's not Isaac, and it's not Jacob, and it's not David, and it's not Solomon. It's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Abraham's gotta be pulled out of idolatry and transformed in his own heart and life because God purposed from before the foundation of the world to bring his son into the world to save us. And the son is born. He's born in obscurity, much like Abraham was. It's a cattle shed in Bethlehem, and he grows to manhood. 
at the appointed hour reveals himself as the son of God and the son of man, the king, the creator, the one who will rescue the world from its sin and chaos. But he will rescue it not by imperial rule or political revolt. He will actually lay down his life on a cross, dying the death of a common criminal but it is actually the death that sinners deserve and he will absorb all of God's wrath for our sins and he will open a powerful, ever-flowing fountain of forgiveness and cleansing for all who come believing in his name and that fountain is his blood. And 50 days after his death and resurrection, the disciples will gather in Jerusalem prayerfully awaiting the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus the Son had promised to them. And then you come to Acts 2 and you read in verse 4, they, that is these disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Because the God who dispersed the nations 2,000 years before this in an act of great mercy had returned in the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring them together in one communication that would not just resolve the difficulties and language barriers of day-to-day business, but that would actually point them to the great Redeemer and Savior of their souls and of this world. The message they were hearing was nothing other than the gospel. And that is a significant piece of God's eternal building program. He's not simply erasing the confusion of Babel so that people like us can transact our daily business with greater ease of communication, but that supernaturally this gospel of Jesus Christ would spread through those nations represented in Jerusalem and ultimately spread through the world. And you come to Acts 2.21, and Peter boldly proclaims, as part of this day of Pentecost and proclamation of the gospel, he says very simply and directly, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, saved from the sin that has corrupted the human race from the Garden of Eden until now, saved from the guilt or from the scattering and alienation of our families and communities that all of us fear, saved from the guilt and shame of our darkest sins that plague our hearts, saved from God's coming judgment against sin that we referenced last week. In Genesis 11, God descended to scatter the people by confusing their tongues. But here, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and as a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ to the nations of the earth, the tongues, uh, the, the language barrier is erased, and the gospel goes out. And here we are, 2,000 years beyond the life and death and resurrection of this Son, Jesus the Christ. God scattered the witnesses in those early days, not as discipline like before at the Tower of Babel, but now he scatters his people on gospel mission, and that's all with a view that one day he will populate his city. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Revelation 7 tells us very simply that at the end of the age, John recorded the vision that was given to him. 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's not looking to build human ant farms. He's looking to build an eternal city populated by this vast multitude of people from every nation, from every tribe and people and language. As we wrap up these brief thoughts from Genesis 11, I wonder if you are seeking to make a name for yourself. You can do that in all kinds of ways. You could be so full of ambition and in a public way that you know, you're all about you know, I, I want to found a company and I want our stock to go public and I want to, you know, be filthy rich one day and I want people to know my name. That'd be one way to do it. But you know, you can also be quietly self-centered and self-serving just by saying no to God. No, I don't believe you're my creator. No, I don't believe you're my king. No, I don't believe you are even a God. I'll live life on my own. That's another expression of just living to make a name for yourself. Anytime we live independently of God, it really is about self. You can hide that for a while, but inevitably that kind of self-centered, self-absorbed living begins to destroy your world. And you know what? God in his kindness has actually allowed some of you to experience that. Some of you are actually in your own moment of Tower of Babel collapse. It seemed to be going so well, you, in charge of your life, until God began to confuse some things. And you're trying to figure out what happened between yesterday and today. God loved you enough, was gracious enough to bring confusion in your world so you would not continue living out this delusion that you could build some kind of monument to self. And then, in kindness, he brought you into a setting like this where another human being opens the word of God and says, have you considered, would you think about this, and if this is you, would you actually turn away from that? We call that repentance. And as you turn away from this great ambition to make a name for yourself, would you turn to the living God and bow before him? Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Ask him to cleanse you from that guilt and shame that sin always brings. Ask him to employ you in his service, whatever that might mean. Would you do that? This is the day God calls you to leave your self-centered and sinful ambition and follow him. This is the day he calls you to surrender all. As part of our closing and even in response to the the truth that God has been giving us, we're gonna sing a song. This may be the first time we've sung it in a worship service. Three years? Okay, so it's likely gonna be new for many of you, but it's, it's a simple song. You'll learn it quickly. And it's a beautiful prayer. Let me read just a little bit of the text. Take all I am, Lord, And all that I cling to. You are my Savior. I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow me when I enter your house. I surrender all to you. I surrender all. Take all my cravings for vain recognition. 
fleshly indulgence and worldly ambition. I want so much, Lord, to make you the focus, to serve you in secret and never be noticed. Take all my hunger for all that's forbidden, every desire and sin I keep hidden. Search me and know me. I want to bring to you a life that is holy and sanctified through you, so I surrender all. Can you sing that in faith? Some of you may never have expressed anything like this in a prayer to God, let alone a song to God, but you can do that right now. And if you will surrender yourself to him, submit yourself, he will not only forgive all of your sins, but he will bring you into his forever family and begin to reorder your life and transform your world, but he will begin that from the inside out. And you will not regret it.